You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. It's Heard Tell Show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. It is Monday, December the 20th. We're almost there to Christmas and the holiday season, and we hope this holiday season finds you and yours well wherever you are across the street or around the world. Appreciate your time today as we start yet another week as we careen towards the end of the year of our Lord 2021. Remember when we were so looking forward to it so 2020 would be over, and now we're saying the same thing about 2022. Of course, that's an election year, so for those of us that are doing culture and politics, keep your bearing don't get your hopes up as uh, one person on twitter said the other day walk into it don't claim 2022 to be your year walk in slowly be quiet be respectful don't touch anything <laughs> that's uh, probably a good way to touch it uh, a couple things we are going to touch on today uh, m carpenter our legal eagle expert uh, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. Uh, she does her weekly Wednesday Ritz. We talked to her about what she covered in this past edition, where she talks about the Supreme Court, things like the coming abortion debates, the hold on SBA down in Texas. She's going to break all that down for us in a little bit. Also going to talk a little bit more about COVID and how that's breaking through the news cycle yet again. I don't know that it ever actually went away, but it certainly popped back up with the Omicron variant. We're going to talk about that and turn the noise down on that. Also, from the CRT podcast over the weekend, if you're subscribed on any of the platforms to Hurtel Radio, you'll automatically get the podcast on the weekends. It's a little bit longer, a little bit deeper dive. We have Sophia Sedegren Booker from the Narratives Project, and we're turning down the noise on the CRT debate. We're not debating CRT itself. We're talking about how we're discussing it in the discourse. It should change your perspective on some things. It should give you some insight on how media deals with something that's just been one of the hottest stories of the past year or so, and hopefully give you some good and discernible information going forward. 
But first, let's talk about the media and the news media specifically. Uh, the New York Times has a podcast out by the excellent Jane Coast and somebody I always listen to, whether I agree with her or not. She has good insights. She's an excellent writer. Her podcast is really, really good. And I recommend folks check it out. But she had Ross Dethard and uh, Jay Rosen on her podcast. And the New York Times, it's been talked about so much, the New York Times actually put the transcript up on their front page. What they're discussing is the hypothetical that if former President Donald Trump runs again in 2024, how should the news media cover it? Uh, Let me read you the introduction to the transcript portion of this, uh, and then we're going to delve into it, because I think this is going to be a real teachable moment and a good way to frame how we discuss news media and culture and politics going into the 2022 midterms, which are going to be very, very political because it is that midterm and it's going to set up the 2024 presidential race. The introduction in the New York Times. With the midterms just months away and the 2024 presidential race around the corner, the press is gearing up to cover more deeply polarizing election cycles. And how it should do that is an equally polarizing question. The media's role in preserving and reporting on our democratic institutions is up for discussion. This is from the New York Times. Last week, the New York Times opinion columnist Ross Tatard pushed back on media critics like NYU associate professor Jay Rosen. Jay asserts that the press should strive to be, quote, pro-truth, pro-voting, anti-racist, and aggressively pro-democracy, end quote. Ross disagrees, claiming that such a stance could feed more polarization. So Jane Coaston invites both onto the show for a lively debate on how the press should cover politics in a democratic society. That's the opening intro to this, but I think the posed question is worth getting into because we need to go ahead and set our own framework for how we're going to talk about news media coverage of the 2022 midterms and projecting out to the 2024 midterms themselves. Remember, what we try to do here is we're not going to tell you what to think. We're going to turn down the noise, especially the news cycle noise. We're going to get to the information and we're going to use it to discern our times as we live in them so that we can make good decisions. So how do we discern this? Well, let's start with the elephant in the room. Donald Trump may or may not run for president in 2024. He's hinting at it. He's raising money like he's going to. Uh, He is also very focused on the 2022 midterms. We've already talked about on the program, and we're going to be talking about it a lot over the course of the next year into November next year, the 2022 midterms. Historically and cyclically, the out-of-power party does very well in these midterms. On paper, the Republican Party should have a great 2022 midterm electorally for a lot of reasons. President Biden's approval ratings are down and lower than what they were when he came into office. There's a lot of issues going on that lend themselves to the Republican message. They should have a good year. So Donald Trump, of course, is also has a side project, if you will, going into this. He wants revenge on some folks that he think wronged him in 2022. I've kind of been calling it his vendetta right. Places like Georgia, places like Arizona. We're going to have to watch them very closely because he is picking candidates and supporting folks, not just to support the party as a normal candidate who used to be the president would, but for his own ways and means of returning to 2020, relitigating that and paying back, frankly, certain officials like Raffensperger down in Georgia, Governor Kemp in Georgia. He's openly saying, we're going to primary you because you did not support my efforts 
after the election when he was alleging voter fraud and these other issues. That's just the environment this is going to be in. Let's address the elephant in the room, though. Nobody knows for sure, probably not even Donald Trump himself, whether he's actually going to run in 2024 or not. Not say he is, not fundraise off it, actually file the paperwork and do the campaign. He could, he might. We have a couple of things to happen before then, though, that we need to take pause on. If he doesn't do well with his candidates in 2022, would that affect it? If the candidates he picked don't win their primaries, does that affect it? Or is he just going to run no matter what because he thinks he was cheated and it goes to his brand and he can continue to fundraise and other things and he may run regardless of any other circumstances? All those things may come to pass. And us guessing and tea leaving it is probably not overly helpful. So let's just set that aside for one second about 2024. But if he does run, this idea about media coverage, how should the media cover? Folks like Jay Rosen, who's a media professor and a journalism professor, he's advocating that the media should be more advocacy-based. And other people, I don't know that Ross was specifically saying it this way, I don't think it's fair characterization, but just to kind of summarize, that the media should be more objective, more reporting just the facts. So how do we turn down the news on this? Because this is going to be a dominant thing, because let's be honest here, the thing the media and the news media likes to cover more than anything else is themselves and how they cover everything else. So this is a really important topic because this is how we get our own information. Here's my premise that I'm going to proffer to you on this topic. If you have to question and or change how you cover something because of who you're covering, the first problem you have to address is yourself. Let me explain this a little bit. If you're changing how you do things just because it's Donald Trump or just because it's Joe Biden or just because it's whoever you want to pick, then that means you are adjusting how you do things based on the circumstances. Now, some of that's natural. You have to adjust to things. I get that. But if your job is to cover the news and your job is to give out information, you should have enough standing and bearing that it shouldn't really matter who you're covering. You're going to cover them mostly the same. Now, the argument is from the left is that Donald Trump is such a uniquely bad thing that we have to change everything we do and be actively against him all the time. Now, that's understandable if that's your worldview. But the problem is, what is it telling you about you? You need to understand who you are and what your role is. The news media role is supposed to be information. I don't have a problem with advocacy media. I read and intake a lot of advocacy media, media and newsmakers who are very open about their biases, are open about their agendas, and are open about what they're trying to accomplish. I got no problem with that. I prefer that. Tell me up front what you're shooting for so that I can make a decision to how to accept your information, process it, and put it back out. But as long as you're up front with it, I'm fine with it. I seek that stuff out. I want outside opinions. Where I start getting upset, and I think the American public in general has started turning media off too, is if you say you're not being biased, and then you put out biased stuff, there's no such thing as no media bias. So don't just say, well, the media should be unbiased. Well, there's really no such thing. It's one of the things we covered on the podcast about CRT. There's really no such thing as neutral because there's no neutral option. Every human being has bias. Every human being has prejudices and things they bring into an argument about priors. 
That's why we don't talk about getting rid of priors and biases. We talk about turning down the noise so that we can understand those things. So how should the media cover Donald Trump in 2024 or for that matter in 2022 or for that matter, anybody else? Just be honest about it. If you're completely against Donald Trump, just be upfront about it. Fine. People are adults. They can handle that. If you're pro Donald Trump, which some of the right wing media is and some of conservative media is, I'm fine with that, too. Again, be upfront about it. Let's stop with this nursery rhyme thing where we try to say the news media should just tell us unbiased information or what we're really saying is we want the news media to tell us just what we want to hear. You have technology in the palm of your hand to seek out any information that you want. Some of this is on us. Go find it on your own. But then you need to hold to account folks that are saying we're going to be as neutral as possible, and then we can judge them accordingly. I, I am a little frustrated at the at the conversation within the news media itself. Let's zoom out a little bit and just be honest about something. One thing that Donald Trump did, whether you're for him or against him, whether you supported him or not, made very apparent is that there was a whole lot of folks in the news media, in the commentary realm, and people that make their money and living off of politics that did not know how to handle and or address him. When we joke online to the point it's almost a trope on media that Trump broke some people, he really did because they just didn't know how to handle it. The way you deal with somebody like a Donald Trump or whoever the next super popular divisive figure is going to be, because there'll be another one after him, there always is, is you have to know who you are yourself. You have to know your own belief systems, and you have to know what you believe, what you stand for, what you're working for. And if you're going to commentate online or on your social media, you better know who you are before you start spouting it off to everybody else. This is where we get into talking about Avatar. People just follow others without knowing who they really are themselves. I don't know that our news media really knew who they were. We know who they think they were. We know who they said they were. But their actions over the last few years, and if you have to sit and have a conversation about how you're going to cover something, tells us maybe they themselves really didn't know. Their actions tell us more than their words do. The news media still hasn't really come to terms with Donald Trump. And I disagree with a lot of the things he does. And there's some things that I think are very, very bad that should be covered a certain way. But when we're going to have this discussion, let's start there. It, how do you cover Donald Trump or another divisive figure down the road? Well, I don't know. How do you cover everything else? Because if you're not having consistency, it should ask questions of yourself on why there was no consistency, why this is so different. We like to pretend that Donald Trump is this once-in-a-lifetime thing, but really he's just packaging on something that's happened before and will happen again. There will always be derisive figures. There will always be figures that come and go. We should try to be as consistent as possible. We should demand not no bias, not taking one side or the other, but it is fair of our news media to demand some consistency, and they don't seem to be doing a very good job of that. Thank you for listening to Heard Tell today. If you're watching on the YouTube or on any other podcasting platforms, or if you're listening on the streaming with the Big Talker, uh, online, the radio, we sure appreciate that. Whether you're on their app, on their Listen Live tab, or on their Facebook feed, we sure appreciate you all. We're going to talk some legal stuff with M. Carpenter later on, talk a little bit of COVID, lots more on the program. Herd Tell Radio, right after this. 
Welcome back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you want to interact with the show, uh, you can leave a comment on whatever platform you're watching this is, whether it's uh, YouTube or the podcast versions. Leave a comment. We will try to get back to you. We try almost all the time to do that. Uh, if you're watching on the Facebook page, you can actually just comment right on there on the Big Talker online radio. Uh, if you want to be more direct, you can follow me on Twitter at 4 for the fire. That's spelled out for uh, the number four. It's right down here on your screen as well. Uh, four for the fire on Twitter is mine. We also have a Twitter for the show, Herd Tell Show at the Twitter. You can email us. You want to do it that way at Herd Tell Show at Gmail. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We will respond to you. Uh, be nice. Keep your bearing. Might even read it on the show. You never know. Ask questions. Give us feedback. We'd love to have it. This is a partnership. We do it as long as you listen and watch it. So let us know you're out there. Let's talk Omicron for a second. Uh, COVID-19 continuing to dominate the news cycle. Uh, we are watching this Omicron variant. We had last week, if you missed it, you can go back and listen to last Thursday's show. Uh, Michael Siegel, who's been doing a lot of the yeoman's work writing about COVID-19 at Ordinary-Times.com. You can go look at all that. Uh, we asked him about Omicron because there's a narrative forming about Omicron that, that the Omicron variant is more contagious, but is less severe. And we asked Michael directly if that was accurate. And he said, it's a little too soon to know. Uh, well, he reiterated that on his Twitter feed. He's, he said on her tell show yesterday, I said that it's too early to know if Omicron is mild. We're now getting some concrete data showing that it might be. So don't panic, but keep your powder dry. Shutdowns aren't called for but vaccine boosting and masking seems reasonable. That's his tweet from Michael Siegel. Here's where I will continue to say kind of what I've said all along with a lot of this COVID stuff. We need to be sensitive to the unknown unknowns. We don't know every variant, but we do have a pretty good handle, and we've got almost two years of data on COVID-19, not just the disease, but how we react to it. Some of the things we've reacted to it under the guise of just do something haven't been effective at all. Some of them have been. Some things like the COVID-19 vaccines have been amazing technology that is not only changing COVID-19, but now they're using that same technology to do things. They're trying to develop a malaria virus uh, vaccine. Excuse me. They're trying to develop a smallpox vaccine. The medical technology really will be earth changing going forward. Those things are good. People are still debating the COVID-19 vaccine, and I've been very open with you where I'm at on it. I am vaccinated. My household is vaccinated. Uh, you need to talk to your own doctor about it. Don't take a talking head's word for it. Don't just follow somebody who's famous about it. You need to talk to your own medical provider. If you've got legitimate medical concerns, you need to take them up with them and make a decision that's best for you and your family. If you have some kind of an objection to it on a religious or other grounds, then you can work it out that way. But I'm just going to warn you that legally, those are very specific things. When you go, if you try to get a legal exemption from something, you're going to have a little bit of a problem because it's been settled case law that the government can mandate vaccinations for a while. Now, listen to what I'm saying about mandates. Mandates does not mean the government has a right to strap you in a chair and put a needle on your arm. That's not what we're talking about. The government does, according to the courts, and it'll be litigated more as we go forward, the courts and the government have decided they do have a right to set down that you need to have a vaccine or else X, Y, and Z will happen. 
that's a harsh thing a lot of people don't want to talk about because they say, well, if you're going to take away things from me, then it's the same thing as a mandate. Well, not really, because you still have a choice. I understand people want to get hung up on the terms. So if you're not vaccinated, there's going to be more things coming down the road to try to get people to be vaccinated. We talked already about bad faith actors and bad informations with the vaccine. Look, there's not nanobots or razor blades in your vaccine. That's not going to happen. Are there people that have reactions to them? Yes, they are. They're few and far between, but it does happen. Again, don't talk on social media about it. Go talk to your doctor about it. He or she knows you better than the talking head on TV does. I have very specific long-term medical health issues. So when I talked to my doctors, they were very upfront. They looked at me and said, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen with a vaccine with you. There's never been a vaccine like this before. And we hashed it out over the course of quite some long time before I decided to get it. So if you're all pro-vaccine, which you should be, and you just say people, no, people have legitimate reasons to not get the vaccine. Don't get with the broad brush. Be cautious in applying a broad brush to everybody because people might have legitimate health concerns. They have legitimate concerns about their government. Let me let me say one thing too. The conspiracy theorists, uh, our government does have a bad history in our country of doing untoward things with medical health issues. So it's not unfair to ask the question. Where it does get to be unfair is when we have a plethora of data and I'm two years worth of this disease, knowing that these vaccines are almost, for the most part, they're safe, they're easy, you can get them for free, the government is eating the cost for them for now, and it's probably the best thing for most people. Let's not argue about the margins here. You can get into the weeds in a hurry in the margins, but with the Omicron variant and whatever comes after that, we need to understand that the best defense for it is still being vaccinated and taking the precautions that are best for you and your family. Having said all that, Omicron is probably going to be the last shot of people putting up with restrictions. The American people are just getting tired of it. And unless there's some more deadly variant coming down the pipeline, which is possible, and we may have to adjust this, the idea that there's going to be massive lockdowns or shutdowns or restrictions on movement, it's just not going to fly anymore. So the government has their own problems. The last administration and this administration both have had messaging problems with explaining what is and isn't the COVID-19 vaccines, what is and isn't good policy, what is and isn't proper precautionary measures. Things have changed. Now, some of that's not their fault because information changes as we grow. We've been doing this for a while now. Everybody should have a pretty good internal clock on what they need to do when, when it comes to COVID-19. Take your own risk management into your own hands. Stop listening to talking heads. Stop listening to news cycle noise. Talk to your own doctors. Follow people that you know give you good information. Test that information and do what's best for you and your family. When it comes to the Omicron variant, we're going to keep talking about it. We'll have people like Michael Siegel and doctors and medical people and policy people. We're going to continue to advocate for freedom. The government needs to be very careful about coming in on an emergency and then getting into people's rights. If your right does not exist during an emergency, it wasn't a right to start with. But that's not what we're dealing with for the most cases when it comes to COVID-19. We're dealing with inconveniences. We're dealing with government action. We're dealing with folks that don't know but have to try to figure it out on the fly. We can all be a little more patient. We can all be a little more humble. 
to be honest, if a place has a mask thing, it's not worth my time or getting upset about the sign. I just put on my mask and go about my business. If that's too high a bar for you and you won't go into somewhere with a mask on, fine. I would apply this rule to you. If you can talk about freedoms and all that sort of thing, but if you're just going to be a jerk about it, the problem probably isn't the mandate and the signs and all that. It's that you want to be a jerk about it. Treat each other with respect. We can fight COVID-19 without fighting each other. More Hurtel right after this. Welcome back to Hurtel Radio, and we have M. Carpenter joining us, our legal expert, uh, back on the show again. She is a regular to explain these things that are complicated legal matters so good that even I can understand them. Uh, how are you, ma'am? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. She's also a senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. It's where she does her writing, including her Wednesday Ritz feature, which this week uh, involves SB8. Uh, Let's start with some nomenclature on the Supreme Court here. What is a slip opinion? Because you wrote in Wednesday Ritz about this uh, SB8 uh, standing. Before we talk about SB8 and the abortion issue again, what is a slip opinion and why is that different than just the no, we're not going to hear this. Yes, we're going to hear this with the sense that we've been commonly seeing. What is a slip opinion? Explain that to us. A slip opinion is sort of a first version or first draft uh, of a full opinion. So it's sort of a hot off the press. It's been um, it's not in a book anywhere yet. It's not in the official reporter. It's just sort of uh, published out there for um, preliminary purposes. So like it's on the internet now. Uh, you can go to the Supreme Court website or other sites that watch the Supreme Court and read that opinion, even though it isn't uh, an official opinion that's been published yet in, into the official record. What is it um, about this SB8 case that is getting people uh, worked up? We know it's abortion, but underneath the abortion case this is really a government administrative case this is a constitutional law case what is it the underpinnings of this that on the lawyer side not the culture warrior and the online and the social media side what is it the legal underpinnings that have people so worked up about this case well this case is about the extent to which a federal court can curtail a state law um, and, and generally they can't, they can't, they don't have the authority, the federal court or the Supreme Court to declare that a state law is invalid. What they can do is enjoin or prevent state officials from carrying out the dictates of that law whenever they, whenever it would be unconstitutional. State actors cannot violate the, the constitution. So they enjoin state actors. So in this case, we have a law that is not supposedly not enforceable by a government official and but by a private party so we have the court looking at whether or not we can use um, the ability to enjoin state officials if we can apply that to certain uh, parts of the government that may not be directly involved in the enforcement but that uh, for example the state the court that where a lawsuit cannot proceed without the cooperation of the court and so they the petitioners in this case, which is um, Whole Women's Health versus Jackson, 
they are asking the state court judge and the court clerk to be enjoined from helping to carry out the dictates of SB 8, meaning filing a lawsuit, providing over it in court. Um, In addition, they've asked to enjoin several agency heads like the um, medical board director or the uh, nursing or the pharmacy board director, various heads of agencies in the state and the attorney general of, of Texas and a private citizen who had apparently at some point indicated an intention to file a lawsuit under SB 8. So here we are not only trying to enjoin this private citizen who might file a suit, but also um, several other government officials, which we, the government officials part, ex parte young, which is the case that the court talked about a lot in, in reviewing this matter, says that you can enjoin a government official from, from setting in motion the dictates of a law. However, Young kind of put some parameters on that, saying that you can't enjoin a state court. And so that's kind of the issue that's being looked at here because uh, those are the, the defendants in this is a state court clerk and a judge. So how the court decided this is, as, a, as, um, as to those particular defendants is important because that would be a notable change um, for a pre-enforcement challenge. One of the other things that's popping up in this, and you touched on it in your piece, is uh, that we need to understand who the parties involved, because that goes to you know standing, and that goes to how these court cases going. Um, we have uh, the plaintiffs, the petitioners, Whole Women's Health, that's an abortion provider, but the defendants list is long and varied. Why is there so many people on the defendants list of this court case? We understand it's basically the state of Texas, but it, this, this is like looking at a football roster, all the different uh, entities and people involved here. Why is that? Well, because of the, of the way it's set up and because they didn't wait for a bunch of lawsuits to come in against abortion providers before they proceeded, they had to uh, look for other individuals to add to the suit. So, for example, the various agency heads that I mentioned, they have the duty to uh, take action against violators in the, within their profession. So for example, the medical board, they have the requirement and the duty to pursue licensing uh, disciplinary actions against doctors who violate certain laws, particularly with, uh, of health-related issues or health-related laws and rules in Texas. So theoretically, if a, if a doctor violates X- SB8, by providing an abortion, the medical director, the medical board is tasked with uh, disciplinary action on this doctor because he has violated this health code, this health regulation. So the, the plaintiffs here have sued saying that this is a state actor who would be enforcing this law because they would be taking action against the provider um, for having given an abortion. Uh, Of course, the, defendants in this say that's not uh, really not the same thing as enforcing the statute itself because the medical board is not um, is is not filing under SB8 they would be filing under a licensure issue or under this their their authority they would not be necessarily filing a lawsuit under SB8 so they say that it's, this doesn't apply so when the court looked at this case, they, um, first of all, they agreed flat out that the judge and the clerk should be dismissed from the case that SB 8 does not apply 
uh, the, the, the ex parte young does not apply to them because they are part of a court system. And ex parte young was careful to say we can't enjoin a court. Um, but as to the various department heads, the court allowed this lawsuit to stand against them because they do buy the, the plaintiff's argument that they are enforcing the law by punishing providers on their side of things if they violate SB 8. Um, and the attorney general was also dismissed as well because the court said he doesn't really have any authority to do any of that. Although the petitioners say that's not quite true because the attorney general has the same authority as these various agency heads. So what we ended up with was eight out of nine of the justices agreeing that these various health agency heads were properly uh, defendants in this suit. Um, Justice Thomas didn't think that any of the defendants were should be named in the suit and it should be dismissed as to all of them. And of course, the dissent, which was Justices Sotomayor, Breyer, Kagan, and Chief Justice Roberts, disagreed that the court personnel should be dismissed out of the suit. Okay, so in layman's terms, what's happening here is they are, they're kind of paring this down, right? Exactly. And they were careful to point out that this, this decision is not one on the constitutionality of SB8 or lack thereof. They're not, they're not ruling on whether or not SB8 is constitutional here. Um, they're just ruling on whether or not there's an ability to go forward and sue and who the proper parties are to sue. And they also dismissed out the private citizen, Mr. Dixon, because he signed a sworn statement that he has no intention of filing any lawsuits under SB8. So basically what you end up here with is the court is saying you can continue to sue under this statute, but we are not going to enjoin. We're not going to uh, allow you to sue these, the state to stop and join them from, from the clerk from filing these suits when they come in or the judge from hearing them if they come before them. So we're not, we're not done here. We're still going, there's still, the fight's going to continue. The lawsuit's going to continue. It's just that the number of defendants is down to a handful of um, agency department heads. We're talking to him, Carpenter, uh, attorney and senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com, writes a Wednesday writ legal feature, her legal feature for this Wednesday writ, dealing with the uh, SB8, that's the Texas abortion law that is before the Supreme Court now. Um, before we go into breaking down the court and projecting out a little bit of, of what we're hearing about this, what is it about SB8, this Texas abortion law, that folks think this this is the case that's going to be a make-or-break abortion case what is it about this specific law that has kind of gotten it, you know, on the rocket ship to the Supreme Court and everybody on all sides kind of agrees like, yes, this is where the legal battle is at? Well, I don't know that I agree with that. I think that the the other case that's already pending, I believe out of Mississippi, that's the case that's really the make or break on this because that's the one that's directly challenging Roe and Casey. This case is more, um, I think, important in a broader sense. And when you think of the ramifications of laws like SB8, which purports to take the state actors completely out of the equation and has all of the enforcement being done through private parties. And like they argue, and like the court seemed to sort of agree, that's not necessarily the case because they have these um, other people who can pursue licensing, discipline actions and such on providers. So when you when you take this type of a law and apply it to other things, which states have threatened to do, in which California just recently said, the governor there said he would like to see a similar law 
constructed like this in California um, that would take to task gun ownership and hold uh, parties responsible, private parties responsible for um, harm caused by a firearm, for example. And interestingly, the author of the Texas law of SB8 said, oh, yeah, good luck with that. That's a constitutional right right there. You know, the, the, the Second Amendment, that's a constitutional right, which obviously you can extrapolate from that that the author of this law does not believe that the there's a constitutional right to an abortion or else his it wouldn't make any sense for him to say that won't fly because gun ownership is a constitutional right uh, obviously some think that abortion is a constitutional right and so they don't see the difference there but uh, i think we're gonna see some model this this texas sb8 model used against the same types of people who are proponents of it. And so I think that's important is because what we're doing here is deciding whether or not the Supreme Court has the authority to stop uh, a statute like this from from being effectuated. And so far, they have had the chance to do so and have not. They have not said that they are going to prevent this type of a scheme of a scheme i call it a scheme i don't mean that nefariously i just mean a plan here um this was very novel to them and if they had said they could they could have really made a um important ruling here it's something they haven't done before and that this would have been an opportunity for them to sort of create a new bright line and i think they they declined to do so um one thing i pointed out in the piece i wrote was uh, um, Shelley versus Kramer, which was a 1940s case involving restrictive covenants that prevented the sale of a house in certain neighborhoods to families of color. And the family sued, you know, and claimed that it was a violation of their 14th Amendment rights by denying them the, the right to live in this house or to buy this house. And the lower courts said there's no 14th Amendment um, implicated here because this is a private party these are private this is a private enforcement you know the other homeowners in the neighborhood are the ones going to court and suing and to to keep this family out of their neighborhood it's not the state action but Shelley actually said well without the intervention of the court without the justice system there would be no enforcement of this covenant and so I think that was an important precedent for the dissent to po- point out here in our SB8 case. Um, but Justice Gorsuch kind of dismissed, dismissed that case because that was not a pre-enforcement um, case. That was a, you know, they were saying basically that the, the plaintiffs in that case had, did have a right to raise the Constitution as a defense. And as Justice Gorsuch pointed, points out, the abortion providers in Texas still have the right to raise a constitutional defense as well if they are sued. So Shelley didn't go after the um, per, a particular state statute or to or stopping the uh, um, existence of these particular covenants. They basically just said, sure, they have a constitutional right implicated here and they can raise it as a defense. So uh, that was an interesting comparison. We're talking to M. Carpenter, attorney and senior editor for Ordinary Dash Times. We will talk more legal stuff with her right after this on Hertel Radio. 
Turtle Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson, still joined by M. Carpenter, attorney and senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. You can read all her work, including her weekly legal feature, Wednesday Rich, which is what we've been working through uh, this morning, the SB8 case. Uh, you had a couple other tidbits uh, in there besides just the abortion law. But before we pivot off of that, um, let's just take both sides of it for a minute. Uh, we know SB 8's out there. We know this Mississippi case has already been argued at the court. It's probably going to be June before we get a ruling on it. Uh, let's take one side and then the other. So if you're on the pro-life side, what is it that you're happy about? What are you not happy about? Uh, tea leave reading never works out well for the Supreme Court, but for the pro-life folks, uh, where do you think they're looking at it happy and not happy right now? Well, I think the the pro-life side is happy to see that the court has now had several opportunities to put a kibosh on this, and they have not. They've left it alive. Um, they may have awarded a few points in, in the favor of, of the pro-choice side, but I think the court's showing a willingness to entertain this type of, of legislation, and if I'm on the pro-life side, I'm um, feeling pretty good about that. And if you're on the pro-choice side, what what are they are they upset? Is there do they have a glimmer of hope? Because a lot of the more pro-choice folks, especially media commentators and the talking heads on TV, have been just apoplectic since the oral arguments. Um, Try to help us cut through the noise on that. Is it panic time for folks with that viewpoint or are they getting ahead of themselves a little bit? What do you think? I think they're getting ahead of themselves. I think it's uh, sometimes when you hear the oral arguments, it seems pretty cut and dried, which way the, the court's coming down on it. But uh, in this one, you know, when with the oral arguments on this particular case, some of the justices seemed uh, to be a little less willing to go along with what the, the state of Texas was trying to do here. Uh, we, we saw them pointing out that, you know, aren't you, you know, basically trampling all over our precedents and basically thumbing your nose at the court with this. Uh, but when when it came down to it, they did go ahead and, and you know, rule on this on, in favor of largely in favor of the defendants. But uh, I think, you know, it's, it's nice when we see uh, for the pro-choice side, it's nice for them to see that the chief justice was uh, in re- ruling in their favor, even though it remains to be seen if his influence will extend beyond that. Um, I think that noted, noting that this state enforcement is not as private as uh, the statute intended for it to be by allowing the suit to continue against the various agency heads, I think is, is promising uh, as well for the, the pro-choice side. So uh, I think on balance, if I'm pro-life, I'm probably celebrating a bit more today than the pro-choice side would be. Um, but again, I think that the outcome of the Mississippi case is going to be um, much more important. Uh, the, but the thing with the Texas thing is that it is, you know, right now, it is right now in controversy with Roe and Casey, and it's being uh, allowed to stand. So even on the, if even looking to the Dobbs case, SB8 is sort of a bit of a predictor of how the court is is um, willing to rule on that. But we'll have to see. It's it's hard to say. One question I've I've had is um, now the court's makeup is a little different now. Uh, there's a little bit more of a majority. It's not quite a split 
but is there everybody's acting like the Mississippi case is either going to be an up and down on row. It's either going to uphold it or get rid of it entirely. Um, is there room here for a Justice Roberts ACA type maneuver where he busts out something like he did with, you know, it's a tax and got creative with it and does a curtailing or something like that? Or do you see this as, no, this is going to be an up and down thing and then we're going to all be adjusting from it? That's a good question. And I, I would not be a bit surprised to, to find some that there's some technicality that they hang their hat on. Uh, I wouldn't presume to guess what that might be, um, but they seem to find a way. If you think like, for example, Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, from a few years ago, the Colorado Bake Shop case with the gay wedding cake, that one, you know, it, it sort of came out on the side of the baker, but it wasn't on the ultimate merit of the of of what he was doing, it was, well, he didn't get a, a fair hearing below. They were too biased in their questioning. They made it, you know, bias against the, the Baker, the uh, Human Rights Commission, I believe it was in Colorado. So, you know, I think that the court likes to use those types of things when they want to avoid making a big decision. And another thing, I, though, to keep in mind is whether Roe and Casey is struck down or not does not just automatically mean that abortion is now illegal across the country. Those are still going to be a, a, I would think this would be a state by state um, decision depending on how they rule. But generally I think that would be where we would end up. There would still be states where it's allowed. And unfortunately for the pro-choice side, there will probably be a lot of states like Texas that will um, make the cutoff date so early that it would effectively outlaw abortion across the board. Is it safe to assume because you're a, you're a Supreme Court watcher, you explain it to folks like me so that I can even I can understand it. Uh, you talk a lot about the Supreme Court. You know, they're they're covered in a lot of stereotypes and narratives, but they're actually more complex when you actually look into them. abortion isn't when we get through these cases like the Mississippi case, like the SB8 case, which is a state machination type of a case of how the states approach issues like this. I just don't see any way that abortion isn't still a dominant issue for the next 20, 30 years, either which way this thing goes. Is that how you kind of see it? Absolutely. And that's with or without the court. Um, That's the part of this I think people don't realize is that nothing that comes of this is going to stop abortion or make it uh, something that women are um, interested in less than they are now. It makes it harder for them, um, but it's not going to go away. We're going to, the fight's not going to go away. The, the, the pro-choice people are not just going to give up and say, well, I guess that's it for abortion. It's going to continue on. When you take away a right that's been, uh, been around for the entire lives of most women uh, uh, that are still alive right now have lived with this a right throughout their lives, especially as definitely if they're in childbearing years. So I think that it, to think that this is going to make it go away, absolutely not. Um, and then you, who knows what the court looks like in 10 years? Are we coming back again in 10 years with another case that flips it around again? And I think that's part of the issue, part of the problem you run into when you start messing with longstanding precedent. And I know some people would argue this is not longstanding precedent. Um, when is it 50 60 yeah 50 years now uh that's long standing for our lifetimes it may not be in the greater span of the court long standing but it's pretty ingrained 
in, in our modern life. So no, I, I don't see the, the debate going away. Yeah. M. Carpenter helping us turn down the noise on what is undoubtedly one of the loudest issues going for years and is going to get really, really loud here come the spring, summertime when this ruling comes down. And it's probably going to be loud for some time to come. Let folks know where they can find you and follow you uh, at Ordinary Times and elsewhere, because I really rely on you. You're one of you know my most trusted go-to places on legal stuff. Let folks know where they can find you. Sure. Thank you. Yes, I would. I would love for folks to to read my stuff at Ordinary Dash Times. Uh, I feel much more confident in writing than I do talking to you. So um, definitely check things out there. Also, I'm on Twitter at wv esquires. That's e s q u i r e s s, and that's my uh, being clever. Um, so you can find me there to see my Twitter supper club entries and various complaints about my children and those around me. <laughs> Good stuff. We appreciate you very much. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. I'll do it for her tell show for this Monday. Uh, we sure appreciate you all wherever you are across the street around the world. Uh, keep leaving comments and ratings. We appreciate it. Keep sharing us on your social media. Let people know where they can find Hertel Radio and also the Hertel Podcast. Uh, the newest one about CRT with our friends from the Narrative Project is up. Make sure you check that out. Otherwise, we will see you tomorrow for more Hertel Radio. So wherever you are, across the street, around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Y'all take care. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.